Welcome to the Etobicoke Historical Society's monthly oral history podcast. This podcast is one of a series of interviews of senior Etobicoke residents in the 1980s. The interview tapes were recently discovered in the local history room at Richview Public Library. We would like to thank the Toronto Public Library for giving them back to us so they could be made into these podcasts. These oral histories are a valuable and unique view into the history of Etobicoke in the early part of the 20th century, as seen through the personal experiences of local residents. We will be presenting a different interview each month. We hope you enjoy them. Today is Tuesday, August the 17th, and I'm talking to Mrs. Rennie Haslett of 84 Macdonald Avenue in Mimico. Now, Mrs. Haslett, you were, were you born in Mimico? Yes, I was. Where exactly? On 54 Victoria Street, Mimico. Now, was your, your parents? Yeah, it was just a small house my father built when he came from Scotland. Only had two rooms at first, and then finished it later. Now, who would uh, who would help you when you were born? Actually, born right in the house. Yeah, uh, my my doctor was Doctor Serson, John Serson, and uh, he delivered me on that day. He wanted to call me Victoria because I was born on Victoria Day and on Victoria Street, but my mother called me after her mother, whose name is Penelope Rennie. Now, did he have any assistance from anyone? Yes, there, there, I don't think at the actual birth he did, but I think he sometimes probably did. But I know that there was a lady came to, to stay for a little while. Her name was Mrs. Shannon. Never anything about her. Except I remember her being there when my little sister was born, too. But I can't remember if she came with the doctor or after he was there. Now, uh, you went you went to public school. Yes. W which school was that? John English School, Mimico Avenue. So it was about, I think about four or six rooms. I can't remember for sure, but it was a smaller school than it eventually was. And, uh, John English was the principal when I began. He took me right to my first teacher's name was Miss Harkins and uh, he took me down there. His old boy, Ross, uh, was in that room too. So he was the very first principal of that school? No, he wasn't. There were, I understand there was a, at one time, a, a, just a, oh, a log school of one room and I don't know how many principals there were before that because, see, it would be about 19, hmm, almost five, I guess. How old would that be? 1918 or 1917? 19, 19, 17 or 18. 17 or 18 when I went, and I, you know, the church, Anglican church had been built a long time before that, Presbyterian also, and I believe St. Leo's. They were all on Church Street. Royal York Road was called Church Street in those days. So all the churches seemed to be on it, I guess. Now, 
you remember anything about the, about, you, about your school, John English School? Oh yes, I remember it was. Uh, it had a bell, a, a, like a belfry tower at the front on Church Street, and um, the caretaker was Mr. King, and uh, it had a pump outside. Now we had a pump at home, so I thought they used that pump, but apparently they had water in the school that early. And a lot of the people on our street sure didn't have water because there was no water, you know, in the, there were no sewers down. But apparently the school had because uh, that pump was not in use when I got there. I, went, I was sent out to, we started writing on slates in those days, and the teacher had a little bottle, like an old perfume bottle, that she shook water on each of the slates and then you cleaned it off. I remember the, one of the first days I was there, she sent me to fill the water bottle, and I hadn't even noticed they had these little, well, I guess they were like basins in the hall with running water. I didn't even know enough to go to them. I was standing out there with this little bottle on the ground and trying to pump it, and there was nothing coming out. And they didn't know where I was. They had to come out. Mr. King came out, and he told me that there's no water in that pump. But that was one of my earliest remembrances of John English school. And John English himself, uh, I, I remember reading somewhere where he was a real disciplinarian, but I don't remember him as that because I used to always be late because I used to go across a little bridge on the way to school over that creek that ran through town and I would stop and pick, you know, pick up stones and pollywogs and little fish that were in there and I would get into school a lot later. I didn't have any sense of time and I remember he talked to me about it and he wasn't angry at all. He just explained to me that I should listen to the bells, that one went at 20 minutes to nine, this big bell that Mr. King rang, you could hear it all over the village, and that as soon as I heard that I should start running because I would be late. And he was very nice to me after being late so many times. I don't remember ever being afraid of him, or, but I do, he did keep a well-run school, I don't remember any people talking back to the teacher and doing things like that, but yet uh, he himself, in my memory, was not cross or, you know, hard. Now, did you, did you go on to high school? Yes. Yeah, I went past, when I passed my entrance, uh, you went into high school, and we, we used to call the grades in public school like junior first and senior first, and junior second and senior second, and then so on. Now they change it to grade. I guess there was eight just the same, however. But uh, we got Mr. Glenn was the principal of the high school. Um, do you remember anything, anything stand out of your mind some, about, about the high school? Oh, well, um, I think most of us liked high school better than public school because we had a change of teachers and uh, I think I, I always enjoyed school no matter where I went, but uh, I think a lot of people liked it. And people who liked sports, which I didn't, they liked high school because we they had a lot more sports there, you know, gym, they had gym and they had 
jumping and like field day when they got medals and so on for their um, for their sports and uh, then they used to have rugby games and we would watch them get out early to watch them on Friday afternoons and, and some my sister and my brother were more interested in that sort of thing than I was because I wasn't as good good in sports. I liked swimming, but other than that, I wasn't much in sports. Now, what sort of classes, courses, would you take in high school? Well, well, we took a lot of subjects. We took uh, algebra in the first year and French and. Uh, Botany and Canadian history, I think it was, and uh, oh, I've, I've forgotten now. Really, the second year we took uh, physiography and geometry and French and Latin and uh, literature, of course, and composition. Oh, similar. Did you take any sort of practical courses? No, I, we didn't. That was one thing that we didn't have at Mimico High School when I went. They do now, I'm sure. But I know in several of the city schools they took home economics and sewing and different things like that. But I didn't get any of that until I got to normal school. They had those sort of... But we didn't take... There was no shop at Mimico that when I went. Now, there may be, have been later, I'm not sure. How about uh, uh, elementary school, public school? Do they have anything like home economics? Well, I remember we had a nurse, Miss Robertson, and she used to teach the girls how to uh, uh, bath a baby, and she would give us quite a bit about how to make. In those days, they didn't have penicillin or drugs, so you had to know how to make mustard poultices and linseed poultices and all this sort of thing. And she had a class that she took with the. Um, uh, the senior fourth girls, that was the last grade in uh, public school, and she would had like a big doll. It was just really like a baby, and you had to hold it, and she showed you how to bath it properly, and all of how to dry it, everything. And it was more a nursing care in the home. And it was very good, too, because I remembered a lot of the things that she taught us. And but other than that, we didn't get we had no special gym classes, uh, but we got a lot of exercise because the um, you had to walk so far to school back and forth, and you went home for your lunch and back, and then there was always all kinds of ponds to skate on, and and you know they, after school there was all these empty fields where they used to play baseball, and you know and we used to play oh, I know different games at night get together as a group of children and play, I think they call it oyster sails, but I think it probably was hoister sails, and you divided into groups and drew a picture of where you were going to hide, and then the other group had to go and find you. Of course, we would go all through the creek and up the, into the sewer pipes and different ways like that, places, and we would draw on the sidewalk where we were going to go and then we would go there without telling the other side where we were going and that would take a long time for them to find us for, uh, from this drawing. And 
the girls played jacks and, and different things like that. At school, we played those games too. We played, they played ball at school. We had teams. How about the, the girls in particular? Would they? Would you have a lot of dolls? And oh yeah, we always played. I always played with dolls. We had a doll carriage. And I remember where I lived, there, between the two streets, there was like a, a little bush. And it was covered with, I guess they were haw trees. Some, they were like, not tall trees like the oaks. There were lots of them on the street. But uh, there was this little, I would call it a bush. And there was nothing growing on the ground under there because I guess the sun didn't get there. It was all just mud. But we could stand up underneath this group, bunch of trees. We were just little girls. And we could push our doll carriages in there. And we used to play house underneath those uh, trees. And were you able to con any boys into, into playing the father? Or? No, no. We used to kind of play boys and girls. Well, the odd time when we played uh, some games, we, we would get together out in a field. And if they didn't have enough, uh, boys, they'd let the girls play baseball, you know, take up sides and that. But mostly I can remember when I was quite small playing mostly with girls and the boys would play with the boys more or less. Yeah. What sort of uh, upbringing did your parents give you? Was it a very strict? Oh yes, very strict. They were um, Scotch Presbyterians and at home where my dad lived in Scotland, he lived at Colin that was in the sort of those hills around Highlands. And uh, when we used to complain about having to go so much to church, because we went uh, every Sunday, three times a day, we went Sunday morning, then two o'clock in the, three o'clock in the afternoon for Sunday school, and then back at seven o'clock again for night. And we used to think sometimes we'd say to Dad, that's too much going to church, you know. And he'd say, oh, it's nothing like when I was a boy up in the Highlands. He said, we went for the day. We, the preacher used to preach for hours. And we'd just get out and have a, our sandwich and go back in. And he'd preach all afternoon again. It went on all the time. And my mother never used to let us do anything on Sunday. All the, the shoes and everything had to be polished the night before, everything ready for Sunday. And the whole family walked to church and uh, back again for your lunch and back to Sunday school and back again and uh, it was you know it was practically the whole day and she would just cook what was necessary she'd get most of it prepared the day before they didn't believe in she wouldn't let us have um, my mother was more strict even than my father she wouldn't let us have cards in the house or uh, read comics or things like that had to be some good book like the read, and she wouldn't let us go to the lake to swim even on a Sunday but uh, now I'm not sure whether all of the other uh, religions are this were quite as strict but I think most of them were you didn't see people working and doing their washing on Sunday they you know that was taboo they just did their washing on Monday mostly and certain days they had a routine for at least my mother did for what she did now uh Mimico Creek 
wasn't too far from your house. No, it was just at the end of the street, and we used to have great fun over there. I think at one time it must have been a farm because there were lots of apple trees over there, like had gone wild. And I can remember there was a great big house up on a hill there, a good-sized house, square built of brick and lovely driveway. And when I was a very little girl, the front first funeral I ever remember was uh, the man there died, and they had this big funeral, and it was. Uh, black hearse drawn by horses and the horses had purple plumes sticking up and all the people came and watched as it went by along the Lakeshore Road and uh, that man's name I believe was Bailey and apparently uh, according to what I remember the people saying at that time I was only very small he had been a gambler or a drinker or something, and they somehow or other had lost all their property. And after that, that big house was left there, and it was just standing on the top of a hill overlooking the uh, lake, just down there around the corner where, where the, oh, what's that restaurant? Just around the bend as you come into Mimico. Not the pit fair. It used to be pit fair on the other side. West Point. Just beyond that, there's all factories there now. But see, they seemed to cut down all the hills. There were lots of little hills around Mimico when I was a girl. All kinds of little hilly places, and they seemed to level them when they made the factories and the apartments and so on. And uh, do you remember what they did with the uh, with the filth? Like the, the, the earth they took away, did they just flatten it out on the property there? Or? Well, I, I can't remember what they did. It seems to me, they see, there were three big hills, one, two, and then the last one was a winding one. And there was um, goats all running around. They used to bunt us when we went on our sleigh sometimes. And there was a um, right on the creek itself on the banks of it there was a, a man named Mr. Bonner and he was a fisherman and once or twice I got to go when I got up real early in the morning and went out with him and his boat to bring the nets in and these people said I don't know that he just squatted there whatever that meant and that now he owned it like but it was just a little house down there on the banks of the creek and he had children and the wife and and uh, he used to have a little hut right up on the highway with a sign, Fresh Fish, right at the, where the bridge is on the highway at the Mimical Creek, and he used to sell fish. And as far as I know, that's how he made his living. How big of a boat would he have? Oh, it, I, it seems to me, I don't think it was a motorboat, it was a big, big rowboat. But I think later on he had uh, probably motors on it, but when I remembered it, just a huge big motor. I think he did have motor boats at the end, but he, he made his living that way. And he also, some of the swimmers um, uh, used to go down there. And remember Margaret Ravier, I think her name was, she used to come and train before the exhibition swim, and she lived down that way, and he would take his boat out while she was training. And that, and then back of our place, back of the uh, top of Burlington, and back, uh, uh, at 
over the railway tracks, past the sewer pipe factory. There was a big hole in the ground that had filled up with water, and they called it the shale pit. And the kids, we used to go over there and swim too. We weren't supposed to. Your mother never, you were supposed to go up the lake, but we, when it was too cold, we'd often go up there too. Then they started filling in, it in with garbage so we couldn't go anymore, and they finally filled it right in. But that was a great place for people to swim. Well, to. Where exactly would that be located? Well, it's right up, you go right up Burlington Street and over the railway tracks, and it was just a huge, big, very, very deep hole. And they, they had excavated the shale out of that. I don't know whether it was clay or shale, but they called it the shale pit. And uh, it had just filled up with water because no. there was no stream connected with it. Do you remember going back to Mr. Bonner? Yeah. Uh, what type of fish he would uh, bring in? There were, well, he had lots of kind, but the kind he used, yeah, he used to give me one to bring home was a big white fish. I think it was called a white fish. It was a huge big fish, and, and it was good to eat, too. But I, I think they had, at one time, salmon and everything out there. But uh, I know they were, he had all kinds of fish in that little, he used to have a great big tub of ice. Men used to go down to Grenadier Pond in the winter and cut ice and put it in sawdust and just keep it. You know. And that's where you would, your, your family would get the, their ice from, would be from Grenadier. I, now, I can't remember, there was a nice man used to come around, where, whether he cut it or, but I know my dad told me that they, that he had even gone down there and the, when he first came here and cut ice on Grandview Farm. Now, uh, Mimico Creek, would you go swimming in it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, where the the uh, railway bridge was, there was a very deep, deeper part, and then there was a two holes where we swam. We swam under the railway bridge, and then it took a bend and went to the right, and there was a deep hole in the corner and we used to swim there too, and we get, uh, and there was all kinds of flowers. It, it's just you can't imagine it. It just the ground was just covered with trilliums, violets, dog tooth violets, blue and yellow violets, all uh, all kinds of um, um, pitcher plants. There was every kind of bird and and. Uh, flower that you could think of and just covered uh, under the trees and uh, there was fish even up the creek. I remember seeing fishing people would fish there just for little fish I guess. Was, was it deep enough to say canoe up or row a small boat up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There, as a matter of fact uh, I remember there uh, just where the um, what was that place I told you a few minutes ago, the name of the the restaurant, the West Point? Where the West Point was, there was a family called Caves who they had lived there long before we, my people, came there. They were early settlers. And they had a big white house on the hill down by the lake there. And they also owned quite a few other houses that they rented for summer homes. And... Uh, uh, Jim Kay used to rent canoes, and, and you, you would go down there and get a canoe, and you could paddle up the creek, and also go down 
along the lakefront too. And I know he uh, he also um, had stuffed birds, birds that he had stuffed himself in his house. He finally, I think, donated them to the school. But I remember he told me that he got paid quite a bit of money because he had a couple of the wild pigeons that the Mimico's named after, and they're extinct now. So he sold them to the museum. This would be the Royal Ontario? Yeah. So he said that uh, that, would, that people used to make pies out of them, and you know they were just slaughtered when the early settlers came, so they were extinct. And you had mentioned earlier something about a swing bridge. Oh yeah, we just past the the railway bridge, there was a swinging bridge which joined the one side of the creek to the other, and we used to get, have great fun jumping on it and running across it because it was just all wire and boards across. You could run up across it and, and it would swing. You know, it was, it was lots of fun. There's all trees all around. People used to go there for picnics, and, and uh, because we lived so near, we used to go there all the time to play. And in the winter, as I say, we used to take our sleds over there and go down these hills. And uh, after, when we were older, we would even walk as far as Hyde Park to go on the bobsled run down there. That was a lot of fun, but we used to think nothing of walking all the way down there and pulling the bob bobsled with it. We were quite a bit older then. Now, uh, you said you went on to normal school. Did, uh, where did you teach? I Well, we taught at uh, various places in Toronto, Ryerson and Ord Street School, and then there were, uh, th then we'd go by taxi out to uh, somewhere out of beyond Port Credit, where there was a continuation school where we we would teach high school subjects. Because we, if you were in the first class, you had to have some high school experience and you used to go. And then we used to teach within the model school, which was connected with the, the uh, normal school. And did you ever teach in Mimico? I finally, when I, um, graduated I, in 1931 I began to teach in Mimico John English School. And I taught there until I was married in 1938. You're pretty lucky that that was uh, just after the depression started and there yes, weren't very many. Yes I was lucky to get a job then because a lot of teachers didn't get a job for quite some years after that. How did you manage to get a job? Well I, I, I don't know. <laughs> They just picked me, I guess. We all had to write letters, you know, of application, and uh, finally they, uh, one day the principal, who was then Mr. George Coombs, he phoned to tell me that I'd been picked, but there wouldn't be a class, steady class, till uh, February, but that I would do all the um, uh, part-time teaching until then. And so I taught in all the grades when a teacher was away. And then I started permanently. Do you remember your, your first day of, of teaching at John English? Yes, I do. I, I taught the grade 8 because Miss um, Parks, who was the grade 8 teacher, was helping the principal with the enrollment. So they um, 
they phoned me up to say I'd have to come and take that for the first morning anyway. So I went, and that was a grade 8 class. And I got along all right. I can remember, you know, teaching them, and they were quite big pupils. Quite some of them were quite old in grade eight. In those days, they didn't let you pass until you'd really, you know, really pass. They didn't push you on at all. So that you end up with quite a few bigger boys in grade eight that wouldn't go on to high school even because they'd be pro probably old enough to leave school, and if they they would, there were lots of factories in New Toronto, and quite often they would leave school if they weren't going to go to high school and get a job right over there and learn whatever job they went into. You know, the people would train them at, on the job. Some would go to Goodyear, and there was Boxers and Anaconda, and they all had employed a lot of students. Now, uh World War One. Did your uh, father go overseas? Yes, he did, and he was gone three and a half years. And I can remember that I used to go up to the store at the corner and get the evening paper, and on the top of the um, the paper would be listed the numbers of those who were killed or missing. And I knew that my mother would always look there. And I still remember my dad's number was 778522. And I would always look on the top of the paper as I ran back from the store. And if it wasn't there, I was glad, you know, and I would come running in and tell my mother that his number wasn't there yet. So it was a daily, daily ritual. Yeah, and I remember being very, very upset when my father left. And uh, as I told you, the lady, Mrs. Shannon, who, um, came to mind us when the baby was born, my sister. Uh, the last time we saw our father was uh, he got leave home, I guess, for uh, from Camp Borden. And uh, he had taken us over to the creek, my brother, m brother Ian and I. And he had this khaki hanky, that, and he was in his uniform. And he put knots in the four corners and put it into the stream and caught some minnows and pollywogs for us. And we had it in a great big bowl in the, on the kitchen window. And this lady that was looking after us for the week while my little sister Kate was born, she threw them all out the back door on us and, and just threw them and they all died. And we were crying, my brother and I. We were so upset, you know, because our dad had given them to us. And I never liked her at all. I couldn't stand her. That just sticks in my memory is that I thought she was so cruel, but I guess she thought they were dirty things and she was cleaning up, you know, and looking after my mother and the baby and she think they should be in the house. But at that time it was hard to remember. And I remember missing my father very, very much. And you know, worrying as a child. I was really scared that he wouldn't come back. We had a big picture of him, and I used to look at it. And I, was, I think it must have affected all the children whose fathers went away, because I, especially if you could remember him. I was old enough to remember him. My sister, of course, didn't remember him at all. And then she had an adjustment to be 
made when he got home because she didn't know him and was a stranger coming into the house and she took a long time to even she would even go to him or you know she was so just as I was afraid something would happen to him she was afraid of him when he got home well, the, well when he did get home what what happened then what what was it like oh well we were I, I remember we were wakened up and uh, a man who was later mayor of the town Archie Norris he used to make a point of meeting all of the trains you know when uh, boys were coming home and he was the one who brought my father home and uh, he must have brought him home in the middle of the night but we were all wakened up anyway to see him and uh, oh yeah we were really happy and I got staying off of school the next day because I was in the grade one then and I stayed off school because dad was home and then the next day I went back I took a note to say why I was away and the teacher was you know said that was good that I was stayed off to see him. And, uh, you know, it was really a happy time to see him home again. But he looked different. He looked different to me because when he le left, his hair was brown and when he came home from the war, it was quite white, all white down the side and white through his hair. He looked different, I remember. Did he seem uh, to act different? Pardon? Did he seem to, to act differently when he got back? Well, I, I can't remember that he did. No, he he got back. He he went back to his job. He had the job on the town, looking after me. Then, as I say, we only had this small house which he had built. So then he uh, we got the house finished, and after he got back home, things were fairly good again. And during the depression, he had a job, which a lot of people didn't, so we were lucky that way too. But I do remember the hordes of young men coming off the trains uh, and coming down to the back door, knocking on the door, because you see there was just a stir pipe between us and, and the train tracks, and they would come to all the houses there. And mother would give them a meal, you know, take them in and give them bowls of soup and sandwiches. And they were all looking for work, but there wasn't. A lot of them had come up from Nova Scotia, I suppose, and New Brunswick to get jobs in Ontario, and there was nothing here, so they'd just get on the train and go on again. Did they, were any of them nasty sorts? No, they, we never were afraid of them. They were all very nice, seemed to be very nice boys, you know. Some of them would even say, is there anything we can do for you, you know, if there was any job or that. And my mother never really had much for them to do, so she would invite them in. And quite often when we get home from school, there'd be a, some young man there having a meal along with us. No, I don't remember anybody being afraid of them. They seem to be, like nowadays you hear if people are out of work while they're striking and they're gathering up. I believe out west, I can remember reading in the papers when I was a girl about some of these men all getting together and trying to do something. I think there was a bit of a police chase them or did something, as I remember. But around here they seemed to take everything as, as if it was just part of the game. The people just didn't have work and they just seemed to accept it. 
I remember when when I started teaching, I was getting one thousand dollars to start, and that was very good money for those days. And uh, by the time I had taught six and a half years there, I think I was only making six hundred, because instead of getting increases, you got decreases, because uh, you know you, they just didn't have the money to pay you. And um, Nobody seemed to think that was wrong like they do nowadays. They say, oh, they still want their increases. But in those days, you, you accepted that and felt, gee, we're lucky you had a job. That's all I can remember thinking. And I remember finally the town went broke and um, there was a man brought in over, you know, to look after things, an overseer. And uh, we were all asked at school, would we teach uh, without any money, uh, if because they, they didn't think there would be enough to pay us. But it didn't really come to that, but we were asked about it because it was getting so bad. And especially when the, the town just didn't have any more money left, and they forget which year that was. It's been 32 or 3, something like that. And I know this man, I can't remember his name, but he was put in over the, I guess, to assist the council and the people in the office at the town hall, which was right next to John in English School, it was the old Methodist church they made into the town hall. And uh, he was in there and looking after all the, uh, the finances and figuring out how they could get out of this mess. Because, and there were like, there were some people, if you had a, a house, and you had some spare rooms. Well, a lot of the people that were, uh, I, I don't know whether they were just young people, I guess, that were out of work, were sometimes billeted with you. And maybe those people in those houses were, were having to have assistance themselves, I don't know. But I know some where they, they, a young man would have to go in and live in an empty room there with that person. I don't know if they got their food or what the arrangement would be, but there was some kind of help for just the ones that were really had nobody working in their whole house and that, I guess. And so when eventually the town itself went broke and they, this is what happened. Thanks for listening to the Etobicoke Historical Society's Oral History Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and like. If you wish to learn more about the work of our society, be sure to visit www.etobicohistorical.com. See you next month!